Hello? <clears throat> Hello, broadcasting from WHCL 88.7 from Clinton, New York. This is Finding Dodo, and I am your host, Mian. So last week's topic <clears throat> was supposed to be this week's topic, so the two are very connected. Last week, I talked about the occupation of the small island nation of East Timor and the international complicity in that exploitation, uh, including, of course, our very own United States of America was also complicit in that. Um, And this week, I'm going to talk about East Timor's events during the mid-1970s when they won their independence and then lost it subsequently uh, within the month, actually, and the brave journalists who were killed in action trying to bring this country's story to international attention. And this... This event is widely known as the Balibo Five, or the murder of the Balibo Five. Um, so yeah, that's today's topic. Um, so to briefly recap, the U.S. corporate interests were heavily invested in Indonesia in the 1970s and the 1960s, and Indonesia wanted to invade East Timor for their natural resources, such as, I think it was like oil and gas, and we wittingly, very much wittingly, gave them $1 billion worth of weapons to do that, and in fact, 90% of the weapons that the invasion, the Indonesian invasion used were U.S. supplied, and um, the National Security Council absolutely knew about this, and we were still handing over these um, very harmful weapons. And so I also talked about the Santa Cruz massacre of 1991, where my personal heroes, uh, journalists Amy Goodman and Alan Nairn, bravely documented and even tried to protect the civil disobedience of the East Timorese against their occupiers. It wasn't it wasn't even civil disobedience really. They were having a funeral for a killed activist and the Indonesian military sort of just came in and started attacking them because they had never really gone against the occupation at that point. And Goodman and Nairn were actually beaten up. Um I think he got his skull fractured um and they were beaten up by the indonesian military for documenting and and trying to form a human barrier between um between uh the indonesian military and the the protesters or like the funeral the people that were attending the funeral and so this was not a safe place even for journalists like Goodman and Nairn, they were still attacked. And today I will be talking about a more fatal incident. Uh, So Goodman and Nairn, they survived to tell the story. And oh my god, actually really exciting side note. So I think I said last week that I was like, oh, I love Amy Goodman. I respect her work, but she hasn't addressed factory farming. And she, I think because of the influence of her, she has a, a Glenn Greenwald as her colleague and they work really closely together. And um, and they're both going to DXE, which is one of the most like pioneering animal rights organizations. Um, and she is going to their yearly convention in California and speaking with Glenn Greenwald. I just saw that in the news the other day and I was like, whoa, that just went from like zero to 100 real quick in her involvement with like animal rights and animal um, factory farming and stuff like that. So that's great news. Um, Yeah. Anyways, so, um, but yeah, going back to East Timor, so um, even as the world tried to forget about it and was kind of brushing it under the rug and all these powerful countries, um, I mentioned last week the U.S., Japan, Western countries, uh, Australia, I couldn't find anything that they actively did like the U.S., but they were just kind of like sitting by, and as you see today, the way they handled their own civilians their own citizens getting killed was really badly done um so yeah you could say they were complicit also in their silence and um 
yeah, so today I'll be talking about the Balbo Five and kind of the mid-70s in East Timor. So hundreds of years, um, so for hundreds of years, East Timor had been colonized by various European countries, as I talked about last week, and from post-World War II to 1975 November, Portugal had control over the country. In April 1974, Portugal's own authoritarian regime was overthrown, and this encouraged East Timor to seek better conditions for themselves. And at first, the new Portuguese government was like, okay, that's cool, but um, even in East Timor, the groups were split. So there was the Timorese Democratic Union, or they were called the UTD, um, which mm, they like cause a whole host of issues later on that I'm going to get into. So remember the UTD, um, and then there was the Revolutionary Front for an East Tim- Independent East Timor, or the Fredolin. And so the Fredolin and the UTD were just kind of like this dichotomy in East Timor. And the Fredolin wanted speedy independence and a social democracy. They were more socialist, and they enjoyed the broad public support of the East Timorese people. And, um, yeah, by the way, I'm getting most of this information from the National Archive, so I, I just got so much information. I feel like I would be, like, lying. I, I would be, like, I have to credit my sources, you know, because I got so much information from them. Um, and they have an article called, I think it's called East Timor Revisited, which is really great. Um, but I'll, I'll be saying most of what they say in the article anyways here. So... At this point, Indonesia had taken interest in annexing East Timor because uh, they had all those resources, and they set up a party called the Timorese Popular Democratic Association, which it really sounds like it was just propped up as a puppet for the Indonesian government. There was not really any local interest. They were kind of like, oh, we need to have our interests represented on the East Timorese political scene, so let's just create a party. Um, And it was never as popular as the Fredolin or the UTD, maybe because people were sick and tired of being ruled by other people. For around half a millennia, they've been ruled by other countries, so they wanted their own independence, so they weren't about to go supporting an Indonesian-backed party. Um, And so they weren't having much success in getting the East Timorese on board with their fake party, so Indonesia turned to Portugal, and they were kind of like, you used to have this country, don't you want to hand it over? But Portugal at this point was like, no, we're over that, we want these guys to have independence. So um, that wasn't really successful either. So at this point also, the alliance between the Fredolin, which was the popular party, and UTD, which was the more elitist party, had broken off partly also because of Indonesia kind of like spreading mischief around and they were spreading rumors around that the Fredolin had an extremist communist agenda when I think really what it was was more democratic socialism but um Whatever Indonesia was trying to cook up, the Fredolin was clearly the most popular party. In the election of July 1975, it won 55% of the vote. And um, and this is like immediately after. I mean, the, the, I feel like the threat of violence was hanging over them even at that point. So it was the support might have been even more broadband, but they still won 55%. And so then Indonesia convinced the UDT, and this is where I'm just mm, like kind of getting into like the UTD and their problematic actions. Like they, they, it, it, it um, frustrates me more because they were a party by the East, like they were by the elite, but they were at least by the East Timorese people. So I don't know why they took the actions that I'll, I'm about to tell you 
Um, but they trusted Indonesian intelligence and they decided to stage a coup on the capital because they thought they, they why would you trust this country that just wants to exploit you for your resources over your own fellow East Timorese? I don't understand, but they trusted Indonesia over the Fredolin and so they conducted a coup, a, a, like a military coup. And then the Fredolin fought back and by September, the Fredolin controlled nearly all of East Timor. Um, but instead of using, like, abusing the upper voice or the, the upper hand that they had, the Fredolin, um, because remember they had popular support they were sort of the victims in the in some sense because the udt was the one that first made the grab for power but instead the fredolin agreed to the gradual independence program constructed by the portuguese earlier that year so yeah you would think oh that sounds about good like what would be the issue but things don't just they just go downhill from here so um this udt party <laughs> they just keep playing into the hands of the indonesians and so first they tear the country apart by trying to conduct a coup and then when the fredolin fredolin party won they then escaped to the indonesian half of the island and they signed a pro-integration treaty or something to, um that the indonesians presented to them um so now Indonesia is going around trying to stir up trouble because they have one side that has agreed to be annexed into their country. So they, they're like, oh, we just push a little more and we'll get this country. Um, so they're, the Indonesia is trying to stir up trouble. So they have an excuse to go in and quote unquote like restore order, but really just to take over. And at this point, they're testing the waters. Um, and I think they the sources were kind of saying like they could have gone in before and overpowered East Timor. Um, East Timor opposition, East Timorese opposition is not really the problem here because Indonesia was, it, it still is one of the most populous, powerful countries in the world. And this is just a small island nation. The real issue was that the, what the West's reaction would be. So like the United States and powerful countries. And... This is why the case of the Balbo Five comes into play, and it's actually so much more important than the murders of these five people. Actually, so I'm, it's actually six people. Um, the Balbo Five, and then there was also another journalist called Roger East, who I'm going to talk about also. Um, but why these incidents were so important, um, especially the Balbo Five, because it happened before the invasion on November 5th, I think November 5th, and the incident this incident uh catapulted the general invasion that led to the genocide um and because they basically the west's reaction to this these murders these gruesome murders showed indonesia that they could get away with literally anything like killing western journalists so might as well go in and commit a genocide like whatever you know that's kind of what it, it the message it sent to indonesia and it more than anything it, it kind of gave the green light for them to go ahead and and do whatever horrible things they wanted so um so yeah now okay so now i want to focus back to the journalists so a little details about their background so the five journalists from were from two team tv teams in australia and they were covering east timor during this turbulent time to investigate these hit and run attacks along the border with uh, Indonesia-controlled West Timor. Okay, so just to make it clear, um, I talked about this in the last episode, but so East Timor is this island nation, and it's not just one island. So there's the island of Timor, which is split into the east and west side, and the west side is Indonesia's land, and the east side is 
um, Timor's land, or, like obviously East Timor, East side, the East side is East Timor's land, and East Timor also has two other little islands um, on the eastern side of that island, on the island of Timor that are there. So um, yeah, just to get that out of the way. So on, um, yeah, so they were, there, so there's a border along this island, and there were hit and run attacks, and so the Australian journalists ca- were coming in and kind of looking at what's going on, but more broadly, they were there to cover East Timor as it sought independence, but was threatened by Indonesia and all these kinds of players. Um, so, and we can only make an informed guess as to who was responsible for those hit and run attacks, um, but I think it's pretty clear. So, these five journalists were Greg Shackleton, Gary Cunningham, Tony Stewart, Malcolm Rennie, and Brian Peters. And so Shackleton and Stewart were Australian. Originally, I thought they were all Australian, but I was wrong. So uh, Cunningham was a New Zealander, and Peters and Rennie were British, actually. But they were all, I think, working for this Australian, these Australian TV t- TV teams. It was two channels that sent them over there. Um, and so they arrive October 14th in Balibo. And they meet with one of the Fredolin leaders. So the coup hasn't happened yet that I told you about that was conducted by the UTD. But uh, the Fredolin was, the, the election had already happened. So the Fredolin was the majority, the popular party, and they represented the people, I guess. So that's why they were meeting with the Fredolin leaders. And the journalists, so the guy, the leader, um, takes the journalists to see this uh, large buildup of Indonesian battleships offshore. And the Fredolin leader, so they were taping it and they were kind of looking around um, and seeing the situation in East Timor. And the Fredolin leader guy took the tapes from both news teams back with him to the capital and dispatched them to Australia. And this would be one of the last dispatches that would ever get sent out. Um, It really happened quickly. Like, wow. I'm just like thinking about it now and I'm looking at the dates and it's like wow that they like pounced on them really quickly so they arrive on October 14th and then they do like two days of journalism and then okay I'm not gonna get ahead so um okay yeah so then they and they were staying at this unnamed village that was um they were staying in like the kind of the town center and they had painted an australian flag on the front of their door and they had the words australia on the outside of their house and they apparently jokingly called it the australian embassy so that's two two days so that's less i mean they arrived on october 14th so not even two days so that's around like less than 48 hours so on October 16, 1975, the Indonesian forces came into their little house and murdered them. And I, I don't know how else to say it. Like, I don't really have much further to say on what exactly transpired. And I'll go into the different accounts in a bit. But, um, yeah, they, like, came, had their, had their go for two days, and the Indonesian military came in. And the youngest member was Tony Stewart, who was only 21 years old which is just crazy to me because, I mean, that's college age. That's like only, if I only had two more years of life. Um, They were all in their 20s though, and they knew it was a dangerous assignment. And I just, I really wonder like what their last thoughts were because they gave their lives to journalism, to speaking the truth, no matter how powerful the forces were that wanted to keep this dirty secret of East Timor hidden um and yeah just like their courage and their sacrifice is really unfathomable like there's 
I, yeah, I really do wonder what their final thoughts were as they got gruesomely murdered, too. It wasn't just, like, a painless sort of death. Um, okay, so I'm going to go into the aftermath of the incident and kind of talk into the different versions of what happened. So first, I'm going to give the less important version, which is the official Indonesian narrative, which is still maintained. They still maintain it to this day, and Australia has not. So I'm going to talk a lot about, like, how Australia really didn't do a great job in responding to, like, their own people getting killed, because Australia has never even challenged the Indonesian government on this thing that has happened and I think one of their prime ministers was kind of saying like it's bad what happened uh they should be held accountable but then he never did anything and he didn't even visit the grave of these men that got killed so yeah mm, clearly doesn't care enough and so the Indonesian narrative is that they were caught in the crossfire as the Indonesian military invaded the town, but it's also funny because, like, their alibi, if you can call, it's not an alibi, but, like, their excuse isn't really a great excuse because it's, like, why were you invading another country and going around killing people and shooting people in the first place? Like, that's still not really great. Um, it's actually really bad, (laughs) so that's not really, um, uh, an excuse that renders the Indonesian side innocent anyways, but we also have an account of a more, more direct sort of intentional attack that happened and especially now that I think about it like in two days like what are the chances that you would get happen to get caught in the crossfire of conflict in two days like I don't know so we also have the results of an investigation that was opened in 2007 uh which is like 30 plus years later but um the I think it was one of the families of one of the British British guys opened up um, an investigation in Australian court where, and I want to go more in depth into this because this is really where they talk about what I think really happened and they really investigated it. They didn't just kind of like take the Indonesian government's word and it was ruled that they were deliberately targeted and killed with orders from people that were much higher up the chain than previously thought And one eyewitness account said the Indonesian military, quote, shot the journalists who were unarmed with their hands in the air. I saw them shoot. A lot of them were firing. They fired towards the white people. And also, according to new evidence, the fifth Balibo victim locked himself in a bathroom but was stabbed in the back with a special forces person's knife when he emerged which is so fruit that's so terrifying um and the invest in the investigation held that the balibo five were killed deliberately in order to silence them from exposing indonesia's 1975 east timor investigation and the sad thing is is that it was successful they did they did silence them and they did silence the world from looking into this horrible event and um so this 2007 um investigation has been basically like unequivocally dismissed by the Indonesian government and no one was charged from this investigation no one has ever been charged for these murders but um it branded these killings to be a war crime and it was at least a step forward albeit 32 years later um and here we are 12 years after that 2007 finding and I'm not sh- I don't think anything has happened since then so it's still very much in the dark. Um, and after this, another, oh, oh my god, this is where, like, 
I don't know, it gets just so depressing. Like, I know this episode in general is depressing, but, like, these five young men get murdered, and, I mean, that's really horrifying because, I mean, it's it's really horrifying, but then another journalist, Roger East, went to East Timor after finding out about the Balibo Five getting murdered. He, like, consciously decided to go and investigate those murders, which is, like, I, I mean that's oh my god I don't I don't want to like compare which one is braver than the other but like at least the first one you could almost be like oh well a journalist hasn't been killed yet but for Roger East like he knew that five he knew he was going to a really dangerous place like he's going to this place to investigate the killings of journalists and he's a journalist like and I mean (laughs) history shows like I mean I'm not I don't it's not a smart or a not smart idea but it's just oh my god, like, that's really brave, I suppose, um, and a really huge commitment to the truth and journalism. I just can't imagine walking into a place, consciously leaving behind the comfort of your home, the comfort of living in a first world country, and consciously going to a place where you know you're in bodily danger, um, so he really must have had a calling to do this, um, but anyways, his fate is equally tragic. East was captured by the Indonesian military on December 7th and executed by firing squad on the morning of the 8th along the coastal wharf of Dili, which is the capital of East Timor, as part of a mass execution of civilians. His body was thrown into the ocean. Um, so yeah, that is really, I mean, and you would think, you would think, like, this, all this stuff happens and it's so, the media always wants to cling on like this is the thing is people think media the media only um people always dismiss the media saying like oh it's so sensationalized and like you they they only grab onto things that'll get a lot of read or reads or a lot of attention but that's not the only influence that's working on the media like this is sensational stuff like people getting journalists getting stabbed and kidnapped and and executed on a a a dwarf and then thrown into the ocean like that's pretty sensational stuff but why did they not cover that you know like it was because there's some things that have the government and the establishment have a vested interest in to not have covered whether it is sensational or not yeah what is the it's like if it if it bleeds it there's some sort of newspaper saying if it bleeds it leads yeah if it bleeds it leads but not really like that's not even that's almost a a naive interpretation of the media I think like sometimes there's a lot of bleeding and a lot of blood spilled but it's still not given attention so um so the aftermath of these murders reverberated internationally on the scale of just I like I said before like Indonesia's perspective on what they could get away with but also of course it reverberated really personally and um what was said to be the remains of these journalists were they were buried in a jakarta cemetery in a single coffin and none of the families family members of the victims were invited and no one was charged no one has since been charged but i know it would have been especially tragic to you know you send your husband off like um or your brother or your friend off and and no one is held accountable and the widow of greg shackleton uh her name is shirley shackleton would go on to become outspoken about her support for east timor's independence which i think is so brave and tony stewart um who was 
Oh, yeah, he, he was the 21-year-old that died. He left behind a brother, and the brother actually collabed with an East Timorese musician, and they wrote a song to protest the capture of an East Timorese resistance leader uh, later on. And Stewart also was a consultant to the film Balibo, which is about these murders. Um, and so, yeah, like, these people really carried on their legacy in a very respectful way and outspoken, brave way. Um, but there are also, I want to talk about the international consequences of these killings and the consequence of the Australian government, really, not seeking justice. And getting away with these killings signified the green light to Indonesia that they could get away with anything and that the international community was indifferent to their actions. And especially looking at the timing, like this event happens and then only weeks later, Indonesia decides to invade. I think it was a pivotal point and really an unfortunate point in East Timorese history that these killings were not held accountable. And one newspaper said, quote, declassified Australian intelligence records show that the Indonesian high command was very alarmed about the international diplomatic consequences of killing the Balbo Five and called a halt to its military operations for five weeks, but there was no protest from Australia. The Indonesian military took this as a, quote, green light. Uh, they realized that they could treat the East Timorese as they wished. Yeah, because if you're not going to stand up for your own people, you're clearly not going to stand up for another country's people, much less a poor island nation that just got their independence. Um, and actually, in the subsequent decades, what's even worse, really, is the U.S. was not only indifferent, but actively supported this government that conducted, well, obviously the Balibo Five, the murders, but conducted a genocide that um, killed around a third of the East Timorese people and displaced around half. So, um, yeah, they were either killed by the Indonesian military through, uh, through military action or else they were starved. Uh, so needless to say, we should have done something when these journalists were killed. The media, the people, so that means people like us, civilians, we should have been outraged. I say we, I mean, I wasn't even born at this point, but um, I think like, yeah, they won their independence in 1999. So yeah, literally around the time where I was born. But um, we, we should have been, the people should have been outraged, demanded an investigation, shown that this was not acceptable. I don't mean the family members because they probably did everything they could, but it's just like goes back to if the media wants something covered up and if the government wants something covered up, then the public won't pay attention to it. I guess the public has no way of knowing, but yeah, I mean, it's so poignant because it's literally the the couple people that were trying to cover this got killed and then their murders, like people got away with that. So um, yeah, it's just a, on a matter of personal justice, these families are still probably seeking justice. I hope they have closure, but no one was held accountable, and instead, we would go on to support a far greater number of deaths and entire genocide came out of these events or came out of um, the same perpetrators. Um, yeah, this is really heavy, but to close this off, not to make it even heavier, but um, to close this off, I have the tape recording of what I believe was their last dispatch from the Balibo Five, and the power of their commitment to journalism, the injustice of what happened to the East Timorese people is really embodied in this tape. So I'm going to really quickly play it now. Okay. 
Um, I'm playing it from my laptop, so... Okay. Why, they ask, are the Indonesians invading us? Why, they ask, if the Indonesians believe that Frettl and this communist, do they not send a delegation to Dili to find out? Why, they ask, are the Australians not helping us? When the Japanese invaded, they did help us. Why, they ask, are the Portuguese not helping us? We're still a Portuguese colony. Who, they ask, will pay for the terrible damage to our homes? My main answer was that Australia would not send forces here. That's impossible. However, I said we could ask that Australia raise this fighting at the United Nations. That was possible. At that, the second in charge rose to his feet, exclaimed, Camarada journalist, shook my hand, the rest shook my hand, and we were applauded because we are Australians. That's all they want, for the United Nations to care about what is happening here. The emotion here last night was so strong that we, all three of us, felt we should be able to reach out into the warm night air and touch it. Greg Shackleton at an unnamed village, which we'll remember forever in Portuguese Timor. Yeah, so that was, uh, he said, said himself, but that was Greg Shackleton who would go on to be killed um, less than 24 hours later, probably. So, yeah, and, and I just want to say there's also a movie out there on this topic, and it looks really good. It's called Balibo, and I fully plan to watch it over break. Um, and it follows Roger East, who the guy who got thrown overboard into the ocean um it follows his journey investigating the murder of the other five so it's it's very powerful it it looks really good and i recommend everyone watch it because it yeah i'm I'm, it it tells oh yeah it also had um one of the assistant people that kind of had was involved with the making of it was uh the guy that was um also what was his uh tony let me look it up uh tony stewart yeah his brother was involved in the making of it so yeah i think it's really important to watch and remember this history and remember the parts of our history that are inconvenient and painful to recollect um so yeah thank you for listening to this week's episode